Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to elders past, present and emerging. This episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast is brought to you by Yarra Libraries and the Ewing Trust. Fitzroy Library is fortunate to have the continued support of the Ewing Trust, a fund that fosters literacy, libraries and a lifelong love of learning in the historic Melbourne suburb of Fitzroy. Through the support of the Ewing Trust, Fitzroy Library is able to run special events and programs including the Fitzroy Writers Festival for the benefit of Fitzroy residents and visitors to the area. On this podcast, Cat Woods interviews author Catherine Bond about her book Law and War which looks at the dangerous consequences of legislation passed for the purpose of winning a conflict. Law and War primarily looks at laws relating to freedoms and restrictions in Australia during World War I, but its themes are relevant to any time when people are affected by laws created in the name of victory. Law and War author Catherine Bond is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. In 2016, she published her first book, Anzac, The Landing, The Legend, The Law. As part of that work, Catherine became interested in the little considered topic of how law affected the Australian community during the First World War, leading to this, her second book. Cat Woods is a Melbourne-based freelance journalist who has written on books, music, arts and travel for various publications including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Fin Review, Blunt Magazine and The Weekend Australian. Law and War is available to buy from all good booksellers, as well as being available to borrow from Yarra Libraries. I've got Catherine Bond with me from the University of New South Wales. Catherine, congratulations on your book, Law in War. I'm just going to ask you some questions about that book and I guess why it's so timely right now in the midst of a crisis. Wonderful. Great to be here today. So... You've said that Australians have believed and still believe that the federal government will be there to support us during times of crises, yet the experiences of World War I still to this day indicate there are many situations and individual cases which demonstrate otherwise. Why is it important now to consider who is favoured and who suffers most from laws shaped during wartime? What's particularly interesting is that even though this conflict began and ended more than 100 years ago now, the laws that I consider in my book and the people affected by those laws that I consider, many of these parties, many of these individuals, these people are still the ones being discriminated against today by law often. So the the book reveals how law was used as a tool to discriminate against certain people, how it favoured others, and it really provides a picture of how things have simply, in some cases, not changed that much under the law, even though the laws that I talk about were created during and for the purpose of this conflict. So not only does it highlight how individuals who are still discriminated against today were treated, it also gives us an idea of how we treat others, those who we are concerned about or worried about during a time of crisis or conflict. So many of the laws passed during the war were, understandably, 
directed towards individuals who were born in countries now considered the enemy. And I say understandably because, of course, there was always going to be the need to regulate or to keep under some kind of control individuals who were now considered part of the enemy. But what's interesting about these laws is that they simply weren't proportionate to the actual threat caused by these people and they really caused an enormous amount of distress and discrimination against people who had lived in this country for decades, if not most of their lives. So at the start of the war there were laws introduced to ensure that individuals who had been born in Germany, for example, and hadn't taken on the equivalent of British citizenship were required to register their address, their details with their local police. If they moved, they had to re-register. And that was a simple simple introductory measure. But as the war progressed, the measures introduced extended to not only those people who had been born in Germany and still retained German citizenship, but it extended to individuals who had become the equivalent of British citizens. So even though they had been born in Germany or another enemy country, they had become uh, naturalised British subjects. It, it was The laws were extended to also cover individuals whose fathers or grandfathers were born in an, a now considered enemy country. And those measures, the measures that were introduced including included everything from stripping naturalised British subjects born in enemy countries of their right to vote in federal elections. It removed the right of individuals to sue an employer for discrimination if they were let go because of their uh, nationality or their heritage and broad provisions that applied to not only enemy-born individuals but also potentially anyone in the community were also introduced. There was a provision that allowed the internment, so the physical detention of an individual who was considered to have a hostile origin or or hostile origin or association And it wasn't just these individuals. Women, for example, the law affected women in certain ways too. Now, even though women had the right to vote in Australia and they had the right to stand for federal parliament, no woman was actually elected to the federal parliament until the Second World War, despite many trying. So women had to look at other measures to influence the war, influence the home front campaign. So on that, uh, just on that, mm. uh, you've written about Sarah Jane Baines, Adela Pankhurst and Alice Souter mm. and their experiences being convicted and having this overturned as a result of the War Precautions Act. Can you tell me more about the War Precautions Act and these women in particular? So the War Precautions Act was a piece of federal legislation that was passed in the early stages of the war. And it was used essentially as a framework to introduce what are known as regulations. And regulations are kind of quick and dirty laws that can be drafted quickly, they don't need to be approved by Parliament, and they can come into force very quickly. So in the case of Adila Pankhurst, uh, Jenny Baines and Alice Souter, these women were... These women took to the streets of Melbourne in 1917. All had been very active in campaigning against the war so far, but they really became 
dominant in public attention in 1917 when they began to stage large-scale protests in the streets of Melbourne. And this was one of the few ways available to women during this time to actually affect what was going on in their communities. In the case of what was happening in 1917, there was a huge shortage of food. So these women took to the streets to protest against these food shortages. In response to this, as these protests grew and the numbers grew, the attention that these women were getting grew, the federal government under Prime Minister and Attorney General Billy Hughes introduced a regulation that provided an exclusion zone essentially around Parliament House in Melbourne. So it meant that you couldn't protest around Parliament House in Melbourne with a group of more than 20 people if you met there um, on a pretext of doing something. So if you met in this area for the pretext of having a chat with your friends but actually you were protesting food prices, then you could be charged. What happened in the case of Adela Pankhurst, Jenny Baines and Alice Souter was that they were involved in a very large-scale protest and they were arrested under this particular provision. At trial, so every matter under the War Precautions Act went before a magistrate, Baines and Pankhurst represented themselves. Uh, um, Alice Souter had legal representation, but all three were found guilty in breach of this particular provision. They decided to appeal this conviction. The conviction would have seen them go to jail for quite a few months in each of their cases. They decided to appeal their conviction to the High Court of Australia. And they were one of the few instances where they were actually successful in their appeal to the High Court. The High Court, for the most part, said, look, we're not here to look at the propriety of what the government is passing in its laws. We don't look at the wisdom. We just tell you if it's legal or not. But here, the women were actually released on a technicality. The They had been charged that they were in front of Parliament protesting on a pretext, but in fact there was no pretext. They were there to protest food prices. They had made that clear. So even though they were successful successful under the War Precautions Act, they were successful because of a technicality, unfortunately not because of a, a, a otherwise strong legal, legal victory. But it was very important and it was important that people were able to protest during the First World War because it was one of the few avenues in many cases that they were able to speak out against what was happening. And so we're, I mean, we're currently in... I guess the tail end, hopefully, of, of the COVID-19 situation and the restrictions. But what current laws as a result of COVID-19 mimic the laws enacted during wartime? And how does this affect the freedom of individuals, the press, federal and state public servants, and the ways that criminal behaviour or alleged criminal behaviour is treated by authorities? So there are a number of parallels between the laws, the public health orders passed during the recent COVID-19 pandemic in Australia, in the Australian states, and then the laws that were being passed in the First World War. It was very easy 
in the First World War for local police to uh, investigate and in uh, the First World War arrest people for breaches of the War Precautions Act for offences that they might not even known existed at that time. And similarly, what we saw with the COVID-19 public health orders was that often individuals were being uh, issued with fines for offences that they didn't realise were an offence at the time. There was a lot of confusion about what was an offence or what was prohibited in each state at the time. The laws themselves, there were obvious differences between the laws um, with only minimal restrictions on public movement during the First World War in contrast to what we saw with the COVID-19 public health orders. What was interesting, though, is that in both cases or in both circumstances, we saw that increase of individuals being very forthcoming and feeling very willing to dob in their neighbours or to dob in suspicious activity that they saw around their suburbs. The National Archives uh, is filled with letters from the First World War of individuals who were very willing to, if they saw someone acting a bit pro-German or they had a German neighbour who they might have lived next to for a decade, that individual suddenly changes their surname to something that sounds a bit more a bit more English or a bit more Aussie, the individuals were very happy to pen a letter to the Attorney General's department or the Prime Minister to let them know that that happened. And similarly here, individuals were very, appeared very happy to uh, to get in touch with their local Crime Stoppers. The Crime Stoppers websites had a particular area where you could go to notify a particular uh, COVID-related offence or action, whether it was your neighbour breaking quarantine or a, a party at the place next door, which was in probably in breach of uh, social distancing rules. So although there weren't, there weren't too many direct parallels between the content of the law, how we saw the law being enacted, so this use of a central law like the War Precautions Act uh, in the states, our public health acts, being used to create these kind of quick and dirty regulations, public health orders today in order to react quickly to developing circumstances. We saw that increase in individuals being um, convicted or fined for behaviour that they may not have realised was an offence because of the multiple laws and confusion at the time. And we also saw the public being very willing to uh, notify police uh, about conduct that they didn't feel was in the, uh, in the spirit of the law at the time. I'm just thinking about the the protests that happened in Melbourne particularly, mm. but I think uh, nationally in regards to Black Lives mm. Matter. Mm. What laws at the moment that are temporary, perhaps due to COVID-19 or that were made uh, as a reaction to COVID-19, uh, made it, I guess, dangerous for Australians to come out and to to protest under these circumstances? So there are still restrictions around uh, social, or there are still restrictions around social distancing and still requirements of social distancing such that you can be fined, um, issued a fine by police if you fail to social distance, for example. And in addition to that, there are also laws around protests. Protests generally need um 
uh, approval or they need uh, permission from local police in order to go ahead. So in that circumstance, particularly, um, I mean, in, in Sydney, for example, there was a, a case brought to the Supreme Court uh, the day before the Black Lives Matter protest where the protest was deemed to be illegal in relation to the permit that was required to go ahead. Um, simply one of the reasons because of the ongoing pandemic and the ongoing risk to the community if large groups met in public. Now, that was overturned the next day by the Court of Appeal and the protest went ahead. It was believed it would go ahead even if the Supreme Court, that initial decision, stood. So it was that combination with the Black Lives Matter protest of the restrictions around protests and also the restrictions around how individuals can gather those requirements for social distancing with the um, in the COVID-19 uh, public health orders that really provided limits or potentially provided limits as to as to what um, what could be done there. As far as I know, though, no individual has received any um, any pushback or fine under a public health order for any action related to a, the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm-hmm. Um, we may see that come out shortly, but as far as I'm aware, nobody was issued with any kind of fine in relation to those protests on the basis of COVID-19. So on another on another front, your book focuses on actual people affected by the laws during wartime. This makes it relatable and it makes it accessible to a broader public. What is the danger of teaching law or writing about it as purely a theoretical concept? I mean, on a very basic level, law can be really boring. It can be incredibly boring. <laughs> if you look at a statute, I mean, some of our statutes are just hundreds of pages long. Uh, something like the Copyright Act, for example. Uh, I teach intellectual property. The copy, Our Copyright Act, we interact with copyright, with content, creativity every day. That act is more than 600 pages long. Ain't nobody got time for that act. But <laughs> the, the trouble is that when you divorce law from people and how it affects people is that you get that time of that type of reaction that it isn't something that we should respect or it isn't something that we should think about and that's in the community within for lawyers for law students themselves I think there is a risk that we see law as being something ephemeral or intangible, divorced by pe- from people when it is actually made by people. A person writes a law, they come up with a law just like a person writes a book. And the trouble is if we don't think about how law affects people, that's when we start to run into problems. And, I mean, just thinking about some of the laws that were passed during the First World War, it is almost like, they were they were past thinking about a totally theoretical concept of a person and not thinking about how these would actually play out in practice and the really devastating effects that these laws would ultimately have on people's lives and livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell me, were any of the laws that were passed during that period of, of the World War One? Are any of those laws still in place now or versions of them uh, that are still impacting particular demographics of Australia 
um, I guess, adversely, mm. maybe women, maybe particular races? I mean, so the laws themselves, there were a whole range of laws passed during that time that ultimately served the basis for law, laws that came on later on. So, for example, laws around protests, laws around certain associations, being a part of associations, these had their birth essentially in laws that were created for the First World War. So even though today they might not be associated with a particular piece of war legislation, many pieces, many laws do have their origin in how we dealt with the First World War. Because when the law, when the war, when the law, when the war, when that came to the end, the federal government realised that there were some very useful laws that they had passed during that time. They liked how they liked the impact that this had had on the community, how it made it more safe to be in government. And so they created subsequent laws that reproduced or reenacted a number of those provisions. Thankfully, though, we have got rid of a lot of the more discriminatory laws over this period. So one of the examples that I talk about in the book is a particular law that actually predated the First World War. It was included in the Defence Act in 1910. And although this law isn't on the books today, the discriminatory effects of this law, I would argue, still continue to this day. So this introduction, this this legal provision was introduced in 1910 into our Defence Act and it provided a series of exclusions around individuals who wouldn't be who wouldn't be enlisted or wouldn't uh, would be rejected from enlistment if they tried to to serve and you know there were individuals there like members of parliament uh, priests uh, members of the judiciary, members of the police force who were excluded under this provision. But there was also a more nefarious part of this provision. It excluded from enlistment men who were not substantially of European origin or descent. Mm. And that. So I might just butt in there. Mm. So, uh, according to the book, Indigenous Chinese and non European citizens mm-hmm. were denied the ability to serve in the defence forces. Um, I mean, what. What effect does that have if the defence forces do not really resemble public life and Mm. and diversity? What impact does that have? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion around the right to serve and the right to serve as part of being a citizen of a country, the right to protect your country as as being part and parcel of being a citizen of that country. So it had an incredibly negative effect on the psyche of these communities and these individuals, individuals who were seeking to enlist and part of these excluded communities during this time. So in the book I talk about three individuals, uh, a Chinese-Australian man named George Kong Man, whose uh, father was a very successful Victorian businessman and George's brother had actually been able to enlist in the early stages of the war, but when George went to enlist in 1916, he was told that he wouldn't be required because he was not substantially of European origin or descent. Uh, similarly, I also talk about two Indigenous men, one who 
did successfully serve overseas, Douglas Grant, but another man, Harry Grant, who was no relation, who continually kept trying to enlist until after his third attempt, he had managed to um, to get into the military a couple of times, but every time was uh, rejected essentially after a couple of days on account of not only his bad teeth, but his documentation mm. consi- continues to refer to his Aboriginality. We know that Indigenous men and Chinese Australian men and other um, and others were able to enlist and to serve overseas during the First World War. So about a hundred, about a thousand, sorry, Indigenous men were able to serve, but the law said that they were not essentially worthy of serving in our armed forces at the time. They didn't meet that criteria of what the Australian imperial force was supposed to be about. And this was the fact, even though, for example, the ridiculous situation that uh, individuals who had been German-born or whose families were from Germany could enlist because, as one facetious parliamentarian pointed out, well, they were of European origin. And it created a divide in the community. It created a colour line. This is what is continually referred to in newspapers during this period. And many pointed out the ridiculousness of this colour line at a time when we were having conscription referendums. We know that these some of these men were able to serve, but the vast majority would have been turned away despite multiple attempts. And it had a really devastating impact on the psyche, the ability to serve their country and what it means to be able to serve one's country as well. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to ask about is newspapers and free press. So I know that newspapers were censored for the duration of World War I. Mm. Uh, What was the reasoning behind that and is it still a practice that can be invoked to any certain degree today? Mm. The The rationale behind censoring newspapers, uh, which were the main mode of communications at the time, was to really control the war narrative and control what people uh, were reading, what they uh, knew about what was happening overseas, to really keep a tight lid on anything that might negatively impact the war effort. So in addition to newspapers being censored, uh, so some newspapers had to submit their their pages in advance to the census office and they would either be cleared by the censor or passages or parts removed by the censor that the newspaper then had to quickly fill before they went to press. In addition, it was also a uh, an offence to make statements likely to prejudice recruiting or to cause dissatisfaction against His Majesty. And many newspaper editors were subsequently prosecuted under those offences. One of those included uh, Tom Barker, who was the editor of a newspaper called Direct Action. So he was uh, found guilty a couple of times for making statements likely to prejudice recruiting. The most significant, arguably, in relation to a cartoon he published in his newspaper in uh, late 1915. When he was released from jail, though, there was a there was a lot of public outcry when he was in jail because this really was seen as a threat to freedom of speech. The fact that you would put a newspaper journalist, a newspaper editor into prison for being critical of the war effort and the fact was that those who 
had to approve these prosecutions were often the ones who were being criticised. So there was an immense Mm. conflict of interest. When he was released from jail, though, Tom Barker was uh, being a member of the Industrial Workers of the World. That was kind of the beginning of the end for this association. They were often raided. Uh, Tom Barker's flat was raided. And can you just tell me where was direct action situated and uh, what was its agenda? Yes, yeah, so um, direct action was a Sydney-based newspaper with uh, subscribers around Australia and it was the main organ or the main uh, publication of the industrial workers of the world. So the industrial workers of the world were a a radical group who believed in the unity and the strength of workers against the capitalist system, essentially. They were against laws. They were against big union. They were against um, what were known as craft unions. They believed that the best option for uh for, uh, you know, a country like Australia was one big union where every person was united. And they uh, were very much against the war from the outset of the war. And direct action was the main avenue for getting their messages out from Sydney around the country. So when Tom Barker had been released from jail, he went back into the role as editor, but direct action was already on its last legs, so to speak. Um, the industrial workers of the world had been identified by the government as a as an organisation that was a lot of trouble. That really was jeopardising its uh, the the likelihood of success around conscription. Be- the government believed it had a lot of influence on the first conscription campaign in 1916, and so various offences were introduced to start to to quash essentially this organisation and its newspaper. And Tom Barker at the time, um, even though the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies as they're known, uh, were had essentially a flat, uh, they were essentially a flat group in that they didn't have a hierarchy. Tom Barker was really identified as one of the leaders. And he, uh, his... He was jailed, his premises, his personal, his home premises were searched. And, I mean, today we don't have censorship of news in the same way as we did in World War I, but we certainly have where it's considered that national security might be at risk, for example. So uh, we had recently the Anika Smethurst situation where she was, um, her own personal premises, her own home was raided. So just uh, just for any listeners who aren't familiar with the case, uh, Anika essentially um, printed some material that the government felt was sensitive and it, it really brought to light issues around whistleblower protection in this country. Uh, do you feel that a free press is essential to democracy? I mean, uh, that's obviously a loaded question and, mm. and yes, but 
what sort of laws do we have around whistleblowers and are they adequate? Mm, we do have some protections, uh, but often national security will uh, will trump um, any any areas. In the in the Smethurst case, the High Court ultimately found that the uh, the warrant used to used for the search of her apartment was invalid. Um, but while we, and that was the federal police. Yes, the the raid undertaken by the Australian Federal Police, and so we do have some protections for whistleblowers. We do see absolutely we see this as a, that activity as a benefit to society. But there are often things like national security that will simply trump those. Um, that will simply um, trump essentially that those guarantees or that protection. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess just wrapping up, uh, the stories that you tell in the book make clear that there's a vast difference between those who can afford to challenge their rights and those who can't. Is the affordability of legal representation still a major obstacle to justice in Australia? Unfortunately, it is. In the book, I talk about individuals like uh, Franz Wallach, who was an Australian businessman who was able to challenge his uh, his internment during the war before the Supreme Court of Victoria, and then take it the and then the matter was taken to the High Court. And some individuals were able to take their matters all the way through the courts, but obvious, uh, but. Um, often there was a lot of public fundraising behind those behind those campaigns, behind those appeals. The situation is exactly the same today. It's incredibly expensive to go through litigation for the vast majority of Australians taking something to court or taking someone to court, engaging in litigation is simply not a viable option. We do have uh, resources like um, legal aid, for example, so that people will get representation in serious criminal matters. But for the majority of Australians, if something happens to us, if we're arrested for something, if we're engaged in civil action, uh, it's going to be very expensive and likely far beyond what many of us on a, a regular salary are able to afford. So that divide still definitely exists in Australia today. Mm-hmm. And so for anyone out there who is not an expert on either war or law, um, why, what, I mean, what will they get out of reading your book? What will they understand that's relevant now? The book has a number of interesting stories about a number of interesting characters in there. And so I think for readers, those stories themselves are in and of themselves very interesting. For those who's, who might have had family who were alive in Australia during the First World War, they'll get a sense of how their families' lives were uh, restricted or how they lived their lives during this period. And they'll get a sense of how simply overwhelming law is too. The book really also holds the people who wrote these laws to account as well. So there's there's a little bit of something for everyone, but just really interesting personal human stories. People who did make mistakes, absolutely, but whose stories we can learn from and who we can take, we can take something away from their legal experiences. Catherine, thank you enormously for taking the time to 
talk to me about law in war. We're going to wrap up this interview now, uh, but your book is widely available and you are still teaching law, is that correct? Yes, yep, I've got classes tonight actually. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Catherine. Not a problem. No, that's fine. Thanks very much. That was Catherine Bond talking about her book Law and War. Cat Woods can be found via her Instagram handle at cat13gram. If you are not a Yarra Libraries member, please join. It is free and gives you access to the vast collection situated across the five libraries within the city of Yarra. Thanks once again to the Ewing Trust for their support of literacy and learning in Fitzroy and for making this podcast possible.